This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one concert film at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this month for this special bonus episode of Pod Dylan is returning guest, Melissa Tomzak. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on again. I'm so excited. Absolutely. As soon as they announced that The Last Waltz was being put back in theaters for its 45th anniversary, I immediately said that would be a great subject for a bonus episode. And I got to ask Melissa, because (laughs) you have cornered the market on, as I said just before we started recording, you know, the Venn diagram of where Martin Scorsese and Bob Dylan cross over. You have been on the show to talk about No Direction Home and then the Rolling Thunder review. And I was like, how well is we going to talk about uh, but, but The Last Waltz? Um, before we get to the details of all that, though, and a, and a shocking revelation that's to come, everybody, uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening to this, thank you. Because, as I said, this is a bonus episode of Pod Dylan. This is our monthly bonus episode that we do. And that means if you're listening to this, it means you are a subscriber to the show on uh, FM Pods or on Apple Podcasts. And that is a huge huge deal and so thank you very much for supporting the show i really appreciate you are absolutely keeping this show going so thank you very much for being a subscriber i deeply appreciate it okay the context is everybody i go to melissa and i say (laughs) we got to talk about the last waltz and i forget how i framed it but you responded in a way that was shocking to me why don't you share with everybody what that shocking piece of information was I'm very embarrassed to admit that I had not seen The Last Waltz yet. And this <gasps> is only, I know, it's <laughs> horrible. And it, this was only like a couple months ago. And I just, I knew that it was coming out on, in theaters the other day. And I've been meaning to watch it for a while, but to defend myself just a little bit, I, I don't know. I'm very picky about how I watch films and especially if it's one that I know. I'm going to love or like I suspect I'm going to love it or a film like this where you really want to listen to it with a great audio setup, things like that. So for a long time, I was just like waiting for the perfect time and without knowing that they were going to show it in theaters. And so I'm pretty proud of myself for holding out and being able to see it for the first time in a movie theater because it was incredible. Like, it's, I mean, that's all, for any movie, that's the best way to watch it in a movie theater. So that's my defense. <laughs> well, there's no defense knowing. need, no defense <laughs> needed. This is a safe space, but uh, no, but that, that actually makes a lot of sense is that. So it was something that you did want to see. It was yeah. just, you were like, you know what? Maybe someday I'll, I'll hold up. And I, I totally understand that. I rented many years ago, back when I worked at a video store, I rented Lawrence of Arabia because I had never seen it and I wanted to see it. And I loved it. I mean, it's Lawrence of Arabia. It's no shocking news to say I loved it. But I remembered thinking, I don't ever want to see this movie again unless I can see it on the big screen. Just watching exactly. it on, on on home just does not do it. And I that means I went literal decades without having seen Lawrence of Arabia a second time. And then finally, in 2019, they re-released it. And I got to see it on a giant screen and it was worth the wait. Because it's Lawrence of Arabia, you know? Yeah. I mean? so. Well, okay. So here's the other thing is I also haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia because 
of that very issue. And I live in New York City now. And that's the great thing about living here is that they're always showing classics like that on Mm -hmm. in movie theaters. And so I always take a chance. Like, I always take that chance and go see stuff on the big screen. And I'm literally waiting for that. I was literally thinking about Lawrence of Arabia the other day. And I thought, oh, they'll show it in theaters sometime. And I'll go see it then. Yeah, it's 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 totally worth it. It's that yeah. I mean, again, I I endorse. I think you should. Everyone should see movies on the big screen if you can. Um, I don't always wait. Some things I just go like most of us. You know, I go. Eh, I don't care about that and that one that much. I'll wait till it comes to streaming. But for the most part, we make an effort. And I think this year, my wife and I have seen more old movies on the big screen than we have new movies. You know, we've seen yeah. probably just as many. So makes total sense. So I, that worked out perfectly that you were always waiting and here it is. So what, what was your, what was it like? What was the experience of seeing this on the, uh, for the first time? Wow. So I'm excited to tell you about this because it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a story. Okay. So um just purely, not just like the experience of seeing it for the first time, but the, the setting in which I saw it, I'm curious of how your theater experience was as well, because I saw it at an AMC and the only AMC or the only theater in the entire city, which was horrible, <laughs> that was playing The Last Waltz was the AMC on 42nd Street in Times Square. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was. And when I saw that, like when I was getting my ticket and I saw that that was the only one showing it. I was just distressed because I don't know how many times you've been to New York or, you know, anybody listening to this that has this experience, but especially if you live here. And honestly, if you've been here more than like once or twice, you avoid Times Square, like the plague, like it's horrible. (laughs) And I, I mean, it's just awful going to Times Square. And so um, I was not looking forward to that, (laughs) but you know, I got there, power through. And at AMC, there's always like half an hour of previews. And I yeah. hate watching half an hour of previews. So I got there, like, I planned to get there. I always plan to get there kind of late. You know, I walked in, like, my showing's at four. I walked in at like 3.55. I was like, ooh, I got plenty of time. I went to the bathroom. I said, ooh, don't mind if I do. I'll get a popcorn. Popcorn, cold. Not good. Oh. <laughs> um, Whatever. The... Uh, there's like a million floors at this AMC at a bunch of AMCs. There's at, in the city, there's so many floors. They have like eight floors. You have to go like 10 up escalators up until you get to a single theater. I like went up all my escalators and I said, Oh, I'm making perfect time. Like I'll waltz in and I'll take out my little notebook and I'll get myself situated before the movie starts. I walk in and the film, it's not like started yet, but it was only 4.08, like only less than 10 minutes after the start time and it was playing the dedication that they played to robbie before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i was like i was so scared i was like oh my god because i didn't know it was the dedication in the right oh i see oh. <laughs> and i was like oh my god and i was kind of like started freaking out and i really quickly got to my seat and then i realized pretty quickly that it was it wasn't the film but I was like, what's happening? And I had, I, and I was so mad. Like they played half an hour previews at every other thing in the world and not at this one thing. And they even played, I also figured like I saw the talking heads one stop making sense. I saw that in theaters too. And they played like half an hour previews. So I was like, hmm. oh, it'll be the same thing anyway. <laughs> so I was just like, I sat down a little stressed out and but it was worth it it wasn't like a packed theater but it was enough people where like you kind of felt that little 
community feeling of sitting mm. down and watching the concert and people were clapping at the end of songs and you could hear little like muttering when a song started or somebody came on stage that they somebody else loved you know so that was great I don't know I want well I want to hear about your theater experience like how packed was it where did you see it okay well we went to a regal um uh, which is the one we tend to go to just because it's easy to get to and it has the big comfy seats and it has the the way those theaters are regal theaters are constructed the there's the ground level is like the first five rows then you have to walk up steps and go up a level to go to the next set of rows Mm -hmm. and if you get a seat in that front row it's perfect because Mm -hmm. no one's in front of you you're you're a good eight feet off the ground and there's the railing in front of you and there's no and no one so we like that is our default setting is the regal row e because no one gets in front <laughs> yeah. of you and i've noticed like when i was deciding when to get you know i was like well i gotta get it's not gonna sell out close or even close to it but i do buy tickets ahead of time just because it's like i feel good about i have the ticket that i don't have to worry about it but okay. i waited a little longer than i normally would have for whatever reason and i go to buy, <laughs> i go to buy the tickets online and one seat had been sold which was row E in the center. No. <laughs> and I was like, who are you? You son of a bitch. Damn. No. So we bought two seats, like three over and it was perfectly fine. But I just still saw that one little icon of a head. I'm like, damn it. What the, yeah. But the thing I learned, and I learned this the hard way is the Regal, like the AMC runs 37 minutes of commercials, mm-hmm. like, you know, Mountain Dew ads and Malia Menounos talking to you. And, and you know, it's, it, it's car commercials. It's grueling. And then, and then they'll run the trailers and then they'll run like more commercials, which is even more annoying because it's like, no, come on. What are you doing? But what I learned is they don't run them in front of Fathom events. They just start the movie. Must be why. That's exactly, I'm sure that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And I learned that when we went a couple, uh, what was like in May, my wife and I went to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark and we were in line to get snacks and you know, the movie was supposed to start at seven and it was like six fifty eight. And I'm like, oh, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And the snacks took a little longer than they should have because somebody in front of me had a decision making disorder. <laughs> and we get in there and all of a sudden he's running from the boulder. Oh, I'm my like, God. What? And it was because for the for Fathom events, they don't do it. Now, I will say you actually benefited, except for your the momentary panic that you had. Mm-hmm. You actually benefited from that because they did this very strange thing where they didn't run trailers, but they ran a commercial for the last waltz, like on home video before the Robbie tribute. And they don't tell you that's what it is. And so you're like, wait, huh? Like now I've seen the movie before. I know how it starts, but I'm like, what is that? Like, why are they showing you a commercial for the movie? I'm about to watch. And like, they actually show you scenes from it. And it's just a very strange, and then very at the end, there's strange. a little plug. It's like, you can buy it on Blu-ray. I'm like, oh, okay. This is, it just was very, very odd. And then they ran the Robbie tribute, which I thought was fine, certainly appropriate. It's not as though, you know, he's the only member of the band that's not, not around anymore. That's, you know, but okay, fine. Then the movie starts, but so you missed that weird trailer. And I actually think that worked out for you because then you got to see the movie completely fresh, no yeah. scenes, no dialogue, just, bang you're experiencing as it was unfolding right yeah and i i did notice also i don't know if this is a problem for you but 
during the Robbie tribute that they hadn't turned up the sound yet or, or it like wasn't mixed to be loud yet. And so it was really quiet. So yeah. that was another point of where I was panicking a little. Cause I was like, why is this so quiet? It sounds really bad. And in that title card where it says this film should be played loud, mm-hmm. I heard somebody like two rows behind me go, well, I hope it's louder than that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was, it was fine. It sounded good, but um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's a good thing. I kind of figured that some, you know, a Fathom Events commercial or something played before it. Um, but yeah, uh, I yeah, I, I did have very good seats. I was really happy with my selection. I'm also very like I'm very picky about my perfect seat, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in the center, like screen taking up your vision, but not yes, like yes. you don't have to look up at it or anything like that. Yeah, and I, what did you think of the? I guess since we're just talking, like if we're talking about the film in general first, like how did you think the 4k restoration looked? I know that they've had the Blu-ray for a while because of the criterion and stuff, but um, you know, it's different being on the big screen. Um, I mean, I thought it looked great. I, I, I will admit, I think I'm a little bit as much of a, of a film nerd and snob as I am. I, I think I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a Philistine when it comes to like, picture because i i i don't think i noticed this i mean I, it, to me it, it, it the couple times i've seen a movie uh re-released we like a couple of years ago we went and saw the thing and it was clearly projected from i, I swear to god i think like a dvd <laughs> not even a blu-ray and i remember thinking god this looks like garbage like just you know mm-hmm. but outside of that i don't i tend not to notice the thing i noticed about last waltz was you were talking about the sound it was loud like they played it loud and it it felt propulsive like it felt like what i would imagine being in that show was sort of like it, it you know with at the pounding rhythms of the songs you could sort of feel it in your body and that really put it across so i thought it looked good there was a couple of moments where there were some images that looked a little fuzzy here and there but i'm almost like yeah i mean this is a 45 year old movie and it was shot in a concert hall with scorsese didn't have you know, I know he had, you know, Michael Chapman, his cinematographer, his longtime cinematographer working for him, who's a genius. But I mean, he wasn't fully under control of what images he could get mm. at any given point. But I thought it looked great. And I thought it's more importantly for me, I thought it sounded terrific. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it, the sound was really impressive. And like you said, the points where maybe it was out of focus or something, I think that I feel like that adds to it because it's they're filming this live like they only have one take for most of the shots in in these you know um what you know when they're filming the concert that it's not like they can go back and redo it and so I think that adds to the charm when something is out of focus or a cameraman didn't quite get the right angle on a singer or something um I think that's sort of the exciting part like I not to compare it I think they're very different and not to compare it to stop making sense but um I think Stop Making Sense is filmed absolutely perfectly. Like they have all the right angles and stuff like that. And they never miss a movement, but that's different because it's so that achieves like a different end. I think because Mm -hmm. that concert was so rehearsed, like they had choreography for it and everything. And in this, it was a lot more spontaneous and, and loose. And I think the filming style adds to that a lot. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I did read that, originally they were going to film it on six like before scorsese was on i think they were planning on filming in 16 millimeter and then scorsese scorsese was like no we got to do 35 which like <laughs> thank god for that yeah oh my lord yeah. i by the way can one shocking admission deserves another 
I have never seen stop making sense. <gasps> flop. flop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. never, I just never got around to it. And I wanted yeah. to see it when it got re-released. And I just, I just didn't have the time, but I just, I don't know how I, it's, I like the talking heads and I certainly love Jonathan Demi, but it just, I don't know, just ev- ev- evaded me even during my video story years. And I've never gone back to it since. So. Yeah, yeah I, sorry, yeah. everybody. I've never seen this. <laughs> I mean, one, one I of the other great concert films of all time. I can't like knock you too much because when I, when it came out in theaters the last month or whenever that was was my first time seeing it. But that was also kind of on purpose because I was going to watch it like sometime last year. I like kind of sat down to watch it, and then literally that like the week I was going to watch it, planning on watching it, they announced that they were gonna release it in theaters and i was like oh i'll wait so yeah perfect um perfect. which i'm glad that i did but um yeah amazing they're they're super different and it's very demi like if yeah. you love jonathan demi it's very obvious that he directed it and it's great but that's all that we're talking about right right, right. Um, so so okay yeah. so I, I want to find out from you what did you have any inkling of what you were about to see like did you know there were interview segments or did you think it was going to just be a concert from beginning to end yeah, I thought it was going to be a straight concert film. I had no idea that it had the interviews and stuff. I think, I mean, yeah, my impression of it was it was just going to be the entire concert, like similar to Stop Making Sense, where with that, it's just the concert from start to finish. And um so I had no idea that they had the interview segments. I didn't know that there were songs that were cut out. I had heard about bob oh my god <laughs> um, you know getting angry and like telling them not to film like i had heard stories about that because i love scorsese so i um i had like read interviews where he talked about the experience of filming it and like how stressful it was and stuff but yeah i had no idea about the construction which i thought was really really fascinating because i thinking about it i guess it's it was more out of necessity that he sort of structured it in an unconventional way but it's not, it's interesting because it's not exactly a concert film because the songs, it's not every single song in the concert. And right. some of the songs are filmed in a studio. And so it's, and then it's interrupted. And it's not exactly a documentary because it's not exactly like giving you information or documenting anything about the band itself. Like it's not a complete picture of their journey or whatever. So, it's like an interesting mix of these things. And Scorsese always, I mean, he did that with Bob Dylan, the other Bob Dylan documentaries um, where it's not, ex- you know, I just use the word documentary, but like they're not exactly documentaries and they're not really narrative films. Like they're a little bit of a mix of both. And Scorsese is so good at that. And he uses the medium in such an interesting way. And I loved it. I, I mean, it opens with the last song. It opens yeah, with yeah. Their, their cover of Don't, of Marvin Gaye's Don't Do It. And that's the last song of the concert. Nita, that's what he opens it with. Oh, what an interesting choice to do it that way. Yeah. I, when I realized that it was like the encore, it, it's so cool and so fascinating. And I guess it is partially like, I think that's so genius because he's using the footage that he could get or that he was allowed to use. But also imagine if the film, it's, it's a good way to, how should I word this? Like, it's an amazing, it's almost like structuring an album. Like, if imagine if Abbey Road had started with like Maxwell Silverhammer or something, hmm. where like it would, it, it would sort of break up the momentum or like the impact of it. Whereas, like, 
in this it ending with I know that there's a little bit of like the suite at the end, but it the concert itself ending with I shall be released, like that whole group singing. Like if if that had happened and then they had just been like, Okay, then we're gonna do this little encore, you know, it would mess with the rhythm of it, I think. So I thought that was a really genius idea where at first I was like, Oh, that's fascinating and unconventional and why would you do that? But then I think seeing the whole thing it makes a lot of sense. I also think there if there felt a little bit it felt a little like a sort of like how did we get here kind of thing. Like here's the end. Here's the end of the band. Now how did we get here? And now we're yeah. gonna wind back to the beginning and do these interview interstitials. By the way, you know, I know that um one of the details was they served the the crowd at Thanksgiving dinner at five PM and then the concert started at nine. Oh and wow, I had no idea. It, it gave them like turkey, you know, there were like two thousand turkeys and ten thousand pounds of pumpkin pie and all this stuff. And you know, first first of all, the, the concert is as you said, it like leaves out a lot of songs. So the concert I think was something around three hours long because you had to fit in. And I'm like, would you want to eat this giant heavy meal? And then see a three-hour concert. Yeah. It seems like I don't know. Like I don't know if I'd want to do that. I think I'd be all sleepy from like yeah, bring your pillow. <laughs> yeah, you know, like okay, you know, that seems kind of an odd choice, but okay. Um, but yeah, it 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 said so the structure of it is very interesting. Um, do you feel? And I'm not by asking this, I'm not suggesting that you you should or shouldn't. But did, what did you feel about the momentum of the show and that it stops for these interview segments? Because I could see some people thinking. Well, you're kind of putting the brakes on things to have to hear them talk. You know, it's again, it's it's an it's unusual structure. Yeah, that that's funny because I kind of made that exact same note where he like purposefully ends the momentum of the concert, like he prevents it from building it, which is like I don't know how to describe it. I it's not that I didn't feel the energy of the concert or I didn't feel like it had any excitement or momentum, but. Um, it, I felt like at the end of each sort of, I, there's not interviews after every single song, but like at the end of every portion where he goes to an interview, I never felt like that momentum got to build enough to where like my heart was beating really fast and I was like freaking out, at least for some of it. But, um, it, and I, I think it's interesting because like he does that on purpose, like, or not that intentionality really matters, but like he very much, in, instead of like fading into or cross fading between the sound of the interview and like fading off the song, it's incredible how he just like cuts off the music and cuts mm-hmm. the interview. I liked it a lot because I, I just think it's so interesting and unconventional and it grabs your attention. Like the contrast between the crowd cheering or like the band still kind of playing out and like the dead silence of the interviews and there just being like one or two people in the frame. I think is really interesting. I think why he did it a little bit, it eludes me maybe. I don't know. I was thinking about, you know, kind of like how you were saying in the beginning, starting with the end of it, making it sort of a, how do we get, how did we get here? And um, this is the end of the band and let's go back to the beginning. Um, I guess it's a similar thing to that where it's like constantly reminding you that this isn't just like a fun session of, a bunch of super famous musicians who are like doing a fun concert, which it sort of is, but like at the same time reminding you that this is about the band and it's about the fact that they've been together for 15 years. They've been on the road for 15 years. And it reminds you of 
why they're ending it, like why they did it in the first place and why they're ending it. Um, Cause they talk about the difficulty of the life on the road and also all of the great things that they experienced and all the people that they met, including the people that you see on the stage. So I don't know something about that. Scorsese loves hard cuts on music. Mm. I've noticed that he did that in, I think we even talked about it when we reviewed no direction home. He does that in no direction home. He, you know, he cuts to Bob, you know, electric Bob, you know, really, you know, singing the like a Rolling Stone or whatever. And then it cuts really hard. And then it cuts back again. And he even did that in the George Harrison documentary. The I think it's the living in the material world where he does that. And I, I think, I think I might've even literally said the same thing when we reviewed no direction home. But one night I was watching my, my wife had fallen asleep and I was like, Oh, watch something. And I was like, Oh, no direction home is like permanently on Netflix or something. I don't, you know, it's like, it's always there. They never lose it, which is great. And I was like, Oh, I'd watch this again. So I put it on and like, you know, the talking is kind of like dude, and they're kind of talking like this. And then when they do the music really loud, like it's like that. And <laughs> like, so I would have the volume up for the talking, and then it would blare to this music. And I was I kept waking her up and I was like, Okay, note taken. Don't watch this in the middle of the night. Because yeah. it's just it's so he does Marty does not like fades, fade ins or fades, except for the <laughs> very end of the movie, which we'll talk about. He doesn't like the the slow fades. It's all just bang, bang, bang. And it's, you know, like, okay, that's just sort of his style. Um, so what did you think of the interviews? And what did you think of, of listening to them? And one of the things I, I saw in my research for this was that, you know, in, apparently in his autobiography, Leon, Levon Helm was very critical of the movie and said he felt that the interviews were constructed in a way to make it seem like that Robbie, Ro- it was Robbie Robertson and like his friends. And I, don't I, I mean look obviously i'm not part of the i wasn't part of the band so I, I can't speak to that but like i didn't get that read from it i know that robbie talks the most of all of them but i didn't i didn't get the vibe of like oh it's it's robbie robertson and the heartbreakers kind of thing it's no they seemed like in they seemed like they were on equal footing even if it's robertson ends up probably talking more than the other four combined yeah i agree with that i think and I did notice, I, I don't think that I heard beforehand, like, I think I maybe saw it mentioned different places, but I didn't have it in my mind going in that uh, it was a thing that, like, Robbie is very heavily featured in a lot of the footage. But, like, now that you say that, and I remember, you know, people mentioning that, like, people were sort of bitter about the fact that he gets so much screen time. But while I was watching it, I think I literally took the note of like the camera loves Robbie. Like it's always on. It's a Robbie. gorgeous man. I yeah, mean, uh, I mean uh, yeah. and how could you not? Like, yeah. and who can blame them? And yeah, if you were to put a camera on me, you would get live footage of me falling in love with Robbie Robertson on that in that movie theater. I did love him. Um, but I I agree. I didn't really feel like it was representing him as the leader. Um, I mean, he's most heavily featured and that might just be a product of either maybe he was the most talkative or Scorsese found him the most compelling in terms of the way that he talked. And they obviously became really good friends after that. So maybe they yeah. were just like bonding. But um, I I didn't get that. I even though maybe it wasn't like completely evenly distributed in terms of who's talking in the interviews, I did get the sense that all of them sort of had equal footing and they were all um they were all contributing to the to the stories and like their thoughts evenly 
Um, I really also really enjoyed the interviews in terms of how, like the form, how Scorsese isn't afraid. And he does this in some of his other films. If you haven't seen his film, uh, American Boy, he does this a lot and it's absolutely incredible. But, um, I love that Scorsese includes him asking him to repeat the question or to like, yeah. include, you know, oh, make sure you say this in your answer or something. Like there's, I think it's the first interview that it cuts to where Robbie is like, oh, should I include that in the answer? And he goes, and, uh, Scorsese like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah. And so the band, blah, blah, blah. Like he includes, hmm. uh, his, the question and his answer, which is something like in journalism that you do a lot. Right. But, um, I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Like I enjoy the filmmaking part of it. I think it's so fascinating and it shows Scorsese being an incredible director, like in real time. Um, and I think by including that as well, instead of just like using the cleaner takes, um, it also just shows like their personalities more and how, um, and I don't know, like this sounds weird to say, but like it communicates their lifestyle a little bit. Like they're just some, guys like young guys who are in a rock and roll band and have been you know for most of their adult life and if not all of their adult life you know if they started like when they were in their early 20s and they're just like very relaxed and very loose and stuff and the way that they tell stories it's like their whole lives is just like stories of the road and so it's cool to just see it in a more loose setting rather than like sitting them in front of a blank background and telling the story and cutting it down. So it's perfect. I don't know. I really enjoyed that part. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, first of all, I mean, uh, the performances are certainly, I think, pretty democratic, you know, Mm -hmm. like they all sing, I think Levon Helm probably actually ends up singing more songs than any of the others. Um, But I mean, you know, Richard Manuel gets to sing a song and Danko sings a song and I don't think, I don't, actually, I don't, I don't think, think Robbie, Robbie actually takes the lead song. on a single song. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Robbie doesn't um, sing on all any of them. Yeah, um, yeah. I agree. He is ridiculously handsome. I turned, I turned, I turned to my wife at one point and said, <laughs> "It is, it is not fair that you are that good looking and you're a rock star. You got to be one or the other. That's not no, really, really right." I had to turn away a couple times. I had to say, "Okay, I can't look at this right now." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he just, you know, and 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 you know, again, not to be critical of of some of the other band members, but like. All the stories that Richard Manuel tells, like, there's, you know, they're not the, he's not a great storyteller. And so I'm imagining if you're Martin Scorsese and you're trying to tell the story of the band through these stories, you know, you're like, well, you're going to get the guy who's a good storyteller. And Robbie Robertson's a great storyteller. He knows how to modulate his voice. He knows how to, he knows what, what to hit and what not to hit. He knows, you know, I mean, part of it is the rhythm of the cutting is that Scorsese, you know, I mean, he has that story about not to be quote the crude part, but I mean, the thing where he's talking to Ronnie Hawkins and he's like, you know, we're not going to make any money, but you know, we are, you are going to get more pussy than Frank Sinatra. Cut. You know, like that's the so that's perfect comedy cutting is mm-hmm. to that. Cause that got my theater was about maybe a third full and it, that got a huge laugh. Like people just <laughs> laughed at that. Cause it's like, and that's Scorsese knowing, first of all, it's Robbie knowing how to tell the punchline, but then Scorsese knowing the rhythm of like, boom, let's go to a song now. Cause you're not gonna, you're not exactly. gonna follow up that joke any better. Um, as a side detail, the, the one moment where Richard Manuel talks about like how much sex he got as mm-hmm. being part of the band 
And there's, I forget exactly what he says, but he almost says something about as long as the amount of sex he was having was like equal to the amount of rock and rolling he was doing, he was happy. Like he was like, he wanted like a 50 50 split. And it reminded me a lot of this is Spinal Tap, where oh. <laughs> the one, the drummer, uh, says, uh, well, you know, as long as I have sex and drugs, I can live without the rock and roll, actually. <laughs> like, no, I was yeah. like, did they take that from the last waltz? It just felt like that, where the guy they was being had like, to have, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah, like, I like being in the band, but I really like, I really like the action. That's really the best part. Like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that fun. was so funny. Yeah, there were a lot of like great laughs. <laughs> like several things got a lot of good laughs. That was so hilarious. And also the part where they're talking about uh when they went to New York and I was watching it in the Times Square, like forty seconds. Oh right. Later. He's talking about that. Yeah. And they said like they got a uh they got a hotel on 42nd street in times square and so that got a good reaction to the crowd because um them joking about like oh you think it's going to be like a great location but it's in the middle of like the worst part of town (laughs) and not the worst as in like well you know in the 70s it was different but um not like the seediest but just like the worst part to be Mm -hmm. and everybody like laughed in a way where it's like yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we had to come here to watch this but yeah, that part is so, and okay, maybe this is a weird, uh, this is sort of in the middle of the film, but I think this was in the exact same spot that you're talking about where he was saying that like the, as long as there's a 50-50 split, cause he asks, I think Scorsese asks about, um, if like a, he asks about the women on the road and it's like a vague question. And he's like, Oh, what about women on the road? And one of them says, Oh, we're not supposed to talk about that, something about that. And I, my only bone to pick with the film um, and its editing, which I think the editing is great and the film is great and I love it, but I did roll my eyes really hard when it cut from that part to Joni Mitchell's set. Um, oh, yeah. The yeah, only yeah. woman in the show and like the only one on stage, I think, in the whole entire concert um, because the other women on stage are when they're filming it on that set. So like, she's the only woman and like the choice to cut that into being like, Oh, you know, the women on the road, we're not supposed to talk to that cut Joni Mitchell. I, that made me roll my eyes. And I was literally thinking when they were talking about that, I literally thought if they cut the Joni Mitchell, I'm going to be really annoyed. And then, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I thought that was, cause there's like a joke in there, right? Like an implication or a joke or both. And I think, that is annoying, and I don't like that. I, you know, I will admit I, that did not even land on me. Uh, and but, but now that you say, it, yeah, it is a that's a little kind of crass because it's like, you know, oh yeah, Joni Mitchell's the only woman saying, okay, har har har, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. That yeah. that said, that's not related. So much related is that um, when 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 Scorsese shows Joni in silhouette. Oh. singing to helpless like that is an incredibly powerful image uh and and for again from the research i saw like apparently the part of the lights went out that was not intentional it was oh, she was God. supposed to be shown but she they couldn't so they just put a mic in front of her but there's something about you know her silhouette she has a very distinctive silhouette she doesn't really look like too many other people i mean yeah she's the only woman singer but even then i think you'd be able to pick her out in a lineup Yeah, yeah of course. but just hearing her 
sing that sing melody or sing harmony um i thought was really striking of just this great black silhouette with this background behind her of her singing i thought that was just just marvelous and that's i also like that uh, you can see the cameras like a lot of times you see the cameraman in the background you know he's like because he had so many cameras running around but he he's not afraid to show like yeah here's the mechanics of getting this thing done you know these guys are carrying these 50 pound setups you know <laughs> they're navigating amid all these microphones and all that other kind of stuff but um uh yeah i you know what I, i'm glad you pointed that out because that didn't i'm thinking about it now that you've said it but it said it didn't i don't think i thought about it when i heard of it but yeah it's a little like eh, all right guys yeah. you know <laughs> okay all right yeah and i completely agree though and i mean that actually is a good point that that her first appearance isn't there it's it's when she's harmonizing with neil young so um, that is a good point, and that is a really beautiful image. I remember when she showed up in that, it just, like, completely, it, like, took my breath away. So beautiful. And yeah. I, I think that, um, I know that I'm kind of being all over the place, but um, in terms of what we're talking about. but well, um, So is the movie. Yeah, that's true. I, I think the Neil Young performance is my favorite one in the entire film. Oh, my God. It was incredible. Um, and I love Neil Young, so that doesn't, that doesn't hurt. But, um, and I loved it so much. I was like crying through that whole thing. But, <laughs> and then like Joni Mitchell showing up, I was like, oh my God, she's amazing. <laughs> and like just so beautiful and so good. And, um, yeah, I, that's such a, I love that, like the beauty of filmmaking of like the happy accidents of, it seems like a lot of this film, the like the greatness of it and obviously i'm not like discounting how good everybody who worked on it is at their jobs but um like a, it seems like a lot of the amazing parts of this film is because of the limitations of the mistakes and i think that's um a function of a lot of great movies like i was just thinking about jaws earlier and how like the only reason that movie is as good as it is is because like the the shark machines weren't working right, <laughs> um, right. and it kind of reminds me of this where it's like Okay, so because we can't film the entire concert, uh, we should probably have these. And, you know, I don't know if this is exactly how it went, but it, it kind of seems like this is sort of how it was, where it's like, okay, we can't record the entire concert. So we're going to have these interview segments in between. And the lights went out. And so we can't film Joni Mitchell straight on. And so she has to be in silhouette. And if we want to get full coverage of everybody on the stage, we're going to have to see the cameras in the background and like but that adds to so much of the greatness and like the tone of the film and um and you know even like when they're telling stories in the interviews and they have to use jump cuts to sort of cut down the you know the way that the members tell the stories um you know if they're not being efficient enough in their speech or if they're just rambling too much and he just does jump cuts and he doesn't worry if it like looks kind of sloppy. I don't know. I think, I think that's like, those are the best parts and it's like what makes the film so good. And it seems like a lot of that was an accident. So um, <laughs> yeah, I even read like one part where uh, I, I think it was the, um, was it the muddy waters song where all of the cameras, they were supposed yeah. to, yeah, we're, weren't supposed to be rolling and they were do, re- reloading the film and one of the cameras just kept, kept going because he forgot, like he didn't realize that he was, he was supposed to stop at that point. And like the only reason they have that 
um song is because that one guy just like didn't reload his yep film. yeah and then amazing so, yeah so i feel like i don't know so so much of this film is just like happy accidents which is so much of filmmaking in general but yeah that's true <laughs> um well okay so you mentioned neil young so let's let's talk about the performances a little okay. bit um i you know it's funny some of the songs uh from, from the band as studio songs i i was sort of like mm, okay that's okay you know like it's fine um and then but some of these the live ones really work like the the shape i'm in i thought was just terrific like just the the propulsion of it and um there was something about that that i really got like wow this is really working for me and i would love to have you know the the, the studio version i'm like it's 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 good i like it but the the live one I thought was just absolutely terrific. But all of them I thought were generally pretty good, you know, or Ophelia or, yeah. or you know the, the up on Cripple Creek or the night they drove all Dixie down. I mean that was great with all the horns and stuff like that oh, and stage yeah. fright. Um, so all those I thought were were um, terrific. Um, and then the first guest is Ronnie Hawkins, their old pal, doing "Who Do You Love," and that was really charming just because I and my my wife pointed this out when we were done she said he looked like he was having a great time like he just looked he was so enjoying himself yeah i yeah i think so too i think i feel like that's true for live music in general where like it's it's just always better almost always better um and watching them also like today at work i was listening to the entire album that includes like all the songs that aren't included in the film and there's such a difference between listening just listening to it and watching them perform it like it adds so much to watch them perform it and so it makes these songs that the studio versions you're like or the album version whatever it's like oh it's good but it's just like it's not my favorite or whatever and it transforms them into this like incredible beautiful um like collaboration between all these people that you're watching on stage and like bringing it all together and like watching Robbie like shred it on the guitar and be incredible um and yeah, I think it adds so much. I loved Ophelia. Um, their performance, I like specifically wrote that down as, um, being like one of my favorite ones that just the band does. Um, and yeah, the Ronnie Hawkins performance, I was so surprised by them doing Who Do You Love? Cause I love that song and especially like, oh, who performs like the more popular version of it? Um, I don't know. The, Again, the more yeah. popular. Yeah, yeah, the more popular version of Who Do You Love, but it was so good, and, and yeah, he looks like he's having all of them, honestly, all of the guests seem like they're having such a good time, and you know, thanks to some cocaine, probably, actually, definitely. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we know that. Yeah, we know that's for certain. There's yeah. a whole lot of whole lot of coke going on. This yeah, but, um, but yeah, it's, he does look like he's having so much fun, and they all look so happy, and it it's really contagious. Like it really, um, it spreads to the audience, I think both at home and, or in the theaters and in the crowd. What do you think about the fact that, I mean, I mean, we you know that the Scorsese was limited. He couldn't, the, the film couldn't be four hours long, but I mean, there was a lot cut. I mean, a lot, I mean, more, almost every artist sings two songs. Muddy Waters did two songs. Eric Clapton did two songs. Neil Young did three Joni Mitchell did three, Van Morrison did two, and they're all cut down except for our man, our guy. They're all cut down to basically one person each. Would you? I mean, do you, what did you? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like maybe a couple of people could have gotten a second number, or do you feel like it's 
eh, you know, you got to just keep moving. Yeah, I honestly, I would take the three hour version. Like I would do that. I, I understand that, you know, even if they were able to film every single one and even if there was no limitations on like how long it could be and stuff. Um, I understand the need to just keep it going and just like give a sample of what it was. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, I don't know. It's like what came first, like the decision to sort of put it a little bit out of order and, uh, you know, cut people down or was it just like purely the fact that the studio was like, Oh, we can't have every single song. Um, and the artist was like, Oh, we can't show every single song. I don't know. I think it really works the way it is, but I did wish that like, I wish that they showed Neil Young and I sort of wish that maybe there's an unpopular opinion. And I'm wondering what you think about this too. I did sort of wish that they showed um, when the artist, like the guest artist would come out on stage more like you hear on the album version um, when they announce Neil Young. And I know that in the, in the film, he says like, I know, you know, this guy and like, he comes out and everybody's excited, but like they don't show, Joni Mitchell's introduction. Mm-hmm. They, they don't show. Um, I don't think they show Van Morrison's introduction, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, don't show Bob's. I mean, you know, yeah, they don't Bob's. show Bob's. Yeah, 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 that, yeah, yeah. That's true. They don't show Bob's. And I remember, like, hearing on the on the album when they announce him, and like everybody freaks out. I remember thinking, like, in the in the film, I didn't know that it wasn't the first song that he did. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of thinking like, wow, the crowd isn't as excited as I thought they were going to be, but it's like, <laughs> it's just because it's the second song. So they already know that he's on stage. <laughs> um, so yeah, I feel like there's some of that, that they could have gotten some of the energy from the crowd and like, including in what it was like to be there, like, and also emulated what it was like to be in the crowd by introducing them. And you sort of get that moment as the viewer of being like, Oh my God. Neil Young's coming out on stage. We're like, oh my God, Bob is coming out on stage. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, from what I understand, the only reason Warner Brothers even gave Scorsese the money to shoot this was on the the specifications that Bob Dylan be in it. So they mm-hmm. obviously weren't that big on it. You know, they were, I think they kind of were indulging him a little bit like, oh, okay. You know, all right, go shoot this. We're going to keep it low, right. you know. And so, yeah, they weren't going to release a three hour version. But yes, obviously, if they had a three hour version now, that would be great to see. That would be <laughs> amazing. I just, and again, not that I am trying to second guess Martin Scorsese on how to construct his films. The only thing is, is when I just look and see that, like, again, jo- Joni did three songs and like Neil Young did, and like there was a song with the band Joni and Neil Young, like, yeah. It would have been neat to just change it up a little, like, oh, a bunch of ones, a bunch of one, 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 two, one, two, one, 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 like just mm-hmm. change it a little because at a certain point, thank God the interview clips are there because then it does break it up. But you do kind of say, oh, okay, everybody's just going to do one. I just now know, oh, here's Neil Diamond. <laughs> Neil Diamond. <laughs> uh, by the way, I find out the only reason Neil Diamond was included is because Robbie Robertson had produced one of his records. So they were, they were friends and that's why he's there, even though he sort of sticks out like, what the hell is Neil Young doing? Yeah. Bad concert. Like, what the hell? Um, Scorsese cut all of the poems except for two. There was the one by Michael McClure and then the bit by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, but like there were other poems and that all got cut. 
as right, well. I forgot about that, and I I wish that he included all of them. I think that's such a fun, like you know, it's kind of like the Rolling Thunder review where they're mm-hmm. including all different sort forms of media and stuff. And I love that. I wish that he included at least the full poems because I feel like which one of it where he didn't include the full poem, they just like showed them reading a couple of lines. The Michael uh, McClure one, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wish that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you could argue that it would, like, kill the momentum, but I don't know, you're already including the interviews. <laughs> like, mm. And I, I I find, I found the um, poems really cool and, and fascinating, so mm. I did wish that he included that. And, yeah, and I don't know, but maybe it, I would, I wonder what it would be like for an average viewer who, who, I mean, I don't know who would be watching this that, like, isn't already a fan of at least a couple of these people, but, yeah, <laughs> like, someone who was just kind of seeing this, like, oh, I like music, and I like concert films or whatever, and this one's an iconic one, I'm going to check it out. If they don't, don't necessarily love this music, I'd be curious to know what they thought if they would wish that there was more, because, I mean, from our perspective, it's like, okay, yeah, I like, the other year I watched nine hours of a Beatles documentary of them, like, sitting in a studio. Like, I'll watch three <laughs> hours of this, you know? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. So, uh, Okay, so before we get to the main event, uh, well, I oh, should God. say the main event, that's a little <laughs> disingenuous to say about the band, but you know what I mean, Well, why we're here. Uh, I do want to ask, what did you think about the studio performances? Because that's, that, again, an unusual choice in the middle of the show to cut to the staple singers at, in, a, in a studio you know, singing the weight, which is my favorite band song. And then you've got Emily Lou Harris with the band singing Evangeline. I was, again, it's a curious choice. Yeah. I, I liked them because I love Emmy Lou Harris and they, they sound really good. And that version of the weight is so beautiful. I listening to the concert version, like cause they have that on, on the album. Um, I liked the one that they put in the film more. And do you know why he, swapped out the versions like why he recorded he included that version of the weight in the studio rather than the concert one i no, i don't i mean i assume that it's because the staple singers and emily harris just couldn't make it to the show right and so that's why they were put in and i guess maybe that that was the performance that he liked the better or something i i found it was interesting that he shows the staple singers one which was terrific. I mean, again, I love that song but then the one with emily lou harris evangeline he holds and shows the end of the recording yeah. and how kind of like unemotional it was. Like they sang this beautiful song and Emmylou Harris, you know, this gorgeous voice. And then they cut and it's like, all right, cut. And then everyone's just sort of just standing there. Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, and it's only one part. I think it's only Levon Helm that like goes up to Emmylou Harris. Like yeah. they're all just like, standing there like, okay, do I go home now? Like, I guess but so. I, I, I was kind again. of love that. I kind of love because they probably did multiple takes and it also kind of seemed like maybe this isn't the truth and I don't want, and it could probably be fact checked, but I don't want anybody to be mad at me if I'm wrong. But it, at first I thought for a second that they might've been like lip syncing it mm. because the acoustics in there, that was a very high ceiling. And um I don't know, but maybe probably not. But, um but yeah, I, I really liked him holding on it and it was an odd choice. Like if that specifically the, the Emmylou Harris bit because I, f- I felt like the, the weight really fit in well. Like for a second, I didn't realize that it wasn't on the stage. Mm. I thought that fit in perfectly in it. I mean, obviously it's beautiful and it was like one of the best songs in the, um, in the film, like 
with all of the different, all of them singing the different verses. It's amazing. But um, I, the Emmylou Harris one stands out so much. And yeah, the decision is like so baffling to me. I don't know why. Maybe it was just, you know, they're friends with Emmylou Harris and they want her to be included in their like final send off. But yeah, I liked him including the end where they call cut and they're just kind of like meandering around. I really like that. Um, I like showing how the sausage is made. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's great. <laughs> yeah, he's pulling back the curtain and showing sort of the artifice of it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was was interesting. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> Bob oh, Dylan. Bob. Uh, everyone knows legendarily that apparently 15 minutes before he's about to go on, he decides, I don't want to be recorded. Uh, I saw online that the, the rumor was that he was worried that the last waltz would interfere with his release of Ronaldo and Clara. Mm-hmm. I, that doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to track with me. Like mm-hmm. they're not going to come out like the same day. So what do you like? What, you know, and plus yeah. you already agreed to it, but like I, that, you know, Bob being weird is not unusual, but that's just <laughs> the reasoning for that just seems a little, a little strange to me, but okay, whatever. So, but, it, but then, uh, and, uh, Bill, Bill Graham, the legendary, you know, music promoter and concert promoter and the promote the concert producer of this, of this, of the show, uh, was on the, the later show with Bob Costas, which is a show I refer to way too much considering it's been off the air for 30 years and it's been <laughs> completely memory hold, but it had a bunch of great interviews and it was in the nineties and back when a lot of these people were still around and he tells the story about you know, Bob saying, I don't want to, I don't want to be recorded. And Bob and Phil Graham's, Bill Graham's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, whatever. And he apparently talks Bob into it, but then goes up to one of the cameramen and says, you better fucking record every bit of this. <laughs> and the guy is kind of like, well, Bob said he wasn't, he didn't want that. And Bill Graham is like, I'm telling you. And he, you know, he's telling the story a little, you know, in the nineties and he's saying his attitude was, What's Bob going to do? Beat me up? You know, like, what, what's he going to do? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, if he finds out later, I recorded it. And of course, that recording exists. It's on YouTube. You can see the all the songs. You can oh, see the entire can? concert. Yes. Oh, I did not now, realize. It is. Oh, my God. It's in black and white. And the image quality is is really poor. I mean, they look like ghosts. But you can see it, and there's Bob in his white hat, and you can hear all the performances. And that's apparently that's the Bill Graham version that they recorded. Um, so I mean, again, what's Bob gonna do? You know, like he's like a <laughs> yeah. little five seven guy who's gonna beat me up. Yeah. Um, so thank he's God we addled muscles. Yeah. <laughs> like exactly. Go what crazy are you gonna do? On um, but so yeah, so Bob only asks for two of the songs to be recorded, and the ones that are in the movie are. Uh, forever young and then baby let me follow you down and then of course followed by the big jam on i shall be released but as you mentioned that's kind of it's it's, it's a little bit of a sleight of hand because what bob performed was he opened with baby let me follow you down then hazel then i don't believe you she acts like we never have met then forever young and then does baby let me follow you down again (laughs) blending into i shall be released and I will talk about what we thought of the performance, but my only comment is, and I mentioned this on Twitter the other day. I love Bob. 
I love I love the music. I mean, I love the work. That's why I do the show. But I love the man too, as much as I can love a stranger. I care that he. I hope that he's a happy person. I hope that he feels satisfied with his life, and I don't want him to be ill and all these other things. That said, he can be contrary for no good purpose <laughs> yeah. sometimes, and and I think that a lot of times, knee jerk contrarianism is just as boring as being predictable because then if it's just knee jerk it's like well then it's just always the opposite it's like that money python sketch get you know shopping for an argument you know where it's like it's just i'm just going to be anti what you expect just for the sake of being anti and i sometimes that can be a little tiresome because look when i go see bob next week or actually when everyone's listening to this it'll be um if you're listening to this the day the show comes out i'll be seeing bob in new york tomorrow and then i'm seeing him again in philly if he breaks out Hazel, or I don't believe you, Shaq, like we never have met, or Baby Let Me Follow You Down, I will be thrilled because those are deep cuts, right? And I like, we all like it when he does deep cuts. But these are the songs you pick to play <laughs> with the band for the last time. Like, that just seems a little like, Bob, it's okay. You can pull out like a Rolling Stone or something. Like, it's okay to just sometimes give the audience what it wants i don't know i just i I see that i see that set list and i just roll my eyes like all right bob come on (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i agree i think i agree about the contrarianism i think sometimes he i don't know with him he's just so genuinely an odd guy yeah that i i don't think that there's like uh any malicious intent behind it you know there are some people who are contrarian and they're like they won't do the hits and they won't do X, Y, and Z. Cause they're like, Oh, I'm above that. And blah, blah, blah. I think that, you know, and again, like you were saying, like not to speak as if I know him, but like based off everything we see about him, I, I think that he just genuinely feels the, <laughs> like, he's just like, I don't want to do the hits and he's just an odd guy. And so I think like the picks don't bother me that much. Like Hazel was amazing. Like listening to it on the record version. Um, I love it. It was so good. And I think, I mean, I don't know how popular it was at the time, but I shall be released is it's popular now. Um, and you know, that was great. And I think like, yeah, his reaction to be like, Oh, I don't want to be recorded. And like to sort of panic about it, I guess falls in line with him, like panicking about performing on stage with a bunch of people. Like it happened with, um, like George Harrison and stuff like that, like at his concert and everything. But I don't know. Yeah. I, it, it does kind of make me roll my eyes that he's like, Oh no, you can't record this at all. And it's a little bit just like, come on, brother, really? Like, yeah. <laughs> please. And he does seem kind of, I, I did note in, in, oh my gosh, in Forever Young, like in the first song that they show that he does seem like kind of checked out. Mm-hmm. Again, could yep. partially be because of the cocaine, but which, cause he does kind of have that look to him throughout all of Rolling Thunder. Um, but he, he does seem kind of checked out. And I'm like, I literally wrote, I think like brother does not care, like, he mm. but that's kind of seems like it's been his attitude, like quite often when you see recordings of him on stage. Um, and you know, like it can be true all the time and his, like his decision to do um to do oh my gosh what did he do again what the heck 
Baby Let Me, Baby um, yeah, Let Me Baby Fall Let You me Down, fall you Hazel, down. and I Don't Believe You. Yeah. yeah, with Baby Let Me Fall You Down, his decision to do that again. I didn't know that that was, like, I, I knew nothing about, like, the set list or anything going in. So I didn't know that that was, like, technically a re- reprise um, while watching it. So Robbie and, like, the other band members, but especially, like, Robbie, you could just, like, see it the most, I think looks so confused when he's, <laughs> when he starts to do baby let me follow you down again like they look like something is going wrong and i was wondering like what that was but i realize now that he just like decided to do that again but um yeah i it, i won't i won't say that he like irritated me like during it because i mean like he's amazing to watch and the songs are so good but it did yeah i agree it made me like roll my eyes a little bit to be like come on bob like really like just be a team player here a little bit yeah i mean the performances are great i mean they really are mm-hmm. um and all of i mean baby let you let me follow you down isn't even his song for pete's yeah. sakes and i did and this was something i noticed seeing it on on the big screen which i had never know i think i've seen the last waltz two or three times before now on home video but this is something i had not noticed until i watched it in on the big screen was you mentioned that he does look a little checked out like he just doesn't look like he wants to be there. And then there's a point where he sees someone in the audience and yes. he almost, oh he like God. gestures to them. I don't know if he points, but he's clearly sees somebody and he gets this big smile on his face. Yes. And after that, then he looks really into it. So I'm like, who was that person that he saw oh, that know. really lit him up? Cause then he's all of a sudden he's smiling and you're like, yeah, there you go, Bob, get into it. You know, it's like, okay. That made uh, me so happy when that happened. It like, it like, yeah, I wonder if like, and he, I think he like leans in. Yeah. Like they're saying something and he like leans in to listen to them. And I think even afterward, he like says something to Robbie where he like, it seems like he's telling Robbie what the person in the audience did or said. Mm-hmm. Um, I would kill to know what that was. Oh but, my God. You imagine? Yeah. But yeah, that made me so happy. I, when I, when that happened, I was like, I, I out loud to myself, I like whispered, I was like, Oh my God. Um, Cause it's like such a great moment, but yeah, you're right. Like after it is that moment where he kind of gets back into it and maybe that's why he decides to um, redo like baby, let me fall you down. Like maybe he just decides that, Oh, you know, we didn't do it good enough the first time. Like I wasn't into it enough the first time. Let's do it again. You know, I mean, you would just again. You know, I know Bob doesn't want to do what the audience expects, and he's got to follow his muse. And thank, thank God that he does. And again, not to, I'm never gonna much like I'm not gonna criticize Martin Scorsese's choice to how to edit his movie. I'm not gonna criticize what set list Bob chooses to follow. But you would just think that if it's the last time you're gonna play with the band, you would do five songs that are. The band song, like, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. Hazel, yeah, they did, they did that on Planet Waves and Forever Young, but you would think he would just be like, let's just do a bunch of basement tape songs. Cause these are Bob say, Dylan I'd and take, band songs. Yeah. I was about to say, I'd like take something from the basement tapes. Like, let's go. Let's do Quinn the Eskimo. Let's just, you know, <laughs> let's do something, but Bob going to be Bob, you know what I mean? Whatever it yeah. is. Um, and I mean, and- he doesn't seem like a sentimental man, so. No, oh, certainly no. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then we get the big jam at the end, which is just amazing for the sheer. First of all, I feel bad that like Ronnie Wood and Ringo Starr, like, don't get to like sing a song. Like they just get brought yeah. out. Like they're, <laughs> they are the Beatles and the Rolling Stones for Pete's sakes. I feel like they yeah. deserved a little more than that. But I mean, I, I, the version of that they do is, is, is great. And I like that you hear Richard Manuel sing a verse from it, but it's more the visual and that you're just like oh my god look at all these people 
I mean, look at all these people. I mean, Joan, there's and there's a point where um I think Neil Diamond doesn't isn't sure what mic to sing on, and you see Joni Mitchell put her arm around him and kind of like push him into their oh, mic, yeah. which is so sweet. It's such a nice nice moment. I mean, and then you've got Van Morrison in that amazing purple jumpsuit that he's that he's rocking <laughs> with the you know the drawstring crotch. You know, it's just an amazing. Yeah. My my wife said. That's a very confident man to wear that outfit, to be, <laughs> yeah. built, to be built like he's built and to be wearing yeah. that outfit. But I mean, just the so visual awesome. of seeing Bob Dylan, the band, Ringo Starr, Ronnie, like just, um, you can't believe that they got all these people here at the exact same time. It's just unreal. Yeah. I, I think so too. I think that I, I love that song. That's like one of my favorite Bob songs is I shall be released and that more like up tempo, like rock and roll version of it is mm-hmm. so good. And it's even better. When, to me, like that song is so. Um, I love your episode on it, by the way, and um, it was oh, like one you. of the first ones I listened to. And I think you guys talk about this a little bit. Like, I part of the reason I love that song is, even though, like, I mean, it's beautiful when he when Bob sings it on his own, and it's such a great song. Like the lyrics are so good, but when there's like several people singing it, it almost feel sounds communal. Mm-hmm. It makes this song feel so I don't know like I don't know how to describe it other than peace and love like it's mm-hmm. just, it just like expresses this uh like really beautiful almost like in the least cheesy way possible like hand-holding sound to me like it it sounds so um I don't know it just is a great uh uh example of like the power of music bringing people together and it's such a great um it's great that it that it ended the film at least maybe not mm-hmm. the concert but like it ended the film because it expresses that like the beauty of the band being involved in so many different people's musical careers in one way or another and like the fact that they're called the band just because like they're Bob Dylan's band is so awesome and I love that song and hearing the like extra verse that's not in um Bob's like sort of original I know it's like kind of a demo but like that's not in Bob's original demo is um is really great and I think that's a beautiful verse and I loved watching yeah I loved watching like Neil and Joni um like everybody singing around them just beautiful not yeah. a lot else to say yeah it's a it's know. a wonderfully like, it's communal it, it works now as a communal sing-along because it's this this you know this hope for liberation you know whether it's like we like mm. we talked about on the show personal liberation or social liberation or you know geopolitical yeah. you know uh, liberation it, it, it's it's in it's one of those eternal songs it's one of those songs that just seems like how has this never been written before you know like how yeah. how did how did this not exist pre-1967 like really like yeah. you know this was the first guy to put the words in this order that seems amazing to me oh. this song seems that way um, so yeah, it's a great, it's a great way to end it. And again, you get to see them all, all together. Now, before we get to the final moment of the movie, which I, I love the, the one interview segment that I thought was made me kind of just think about for a moment was when Rob, when, um, Robbie talks about being on the road for 16 years and he says, talk about being on the road 20. And he goes, I can't even let my mind even think about that. Like to him, that is, you know, it, it that would be hell on earth. And then I think about the fact that we are now in Bob Dylan's 61st year of touring, essentially. Oh I mean, yeah, not, not, you know, not touring like a hundred dates a year touring, 
if you want to count that, we're in we're in thirty years. We're in thirty plus thirty six years of touring. And here's Robbie saying twenty is a frightening idea. So so frightening that he wants to end the band over it. At least as as a live act, which as far as I understand, the other four were not super into. And here is Bob doing this for sixty years. I'm just like. It's a stat. And at his stagger. age, like not not as like a thirty-something year old, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's just and and it makes you think that Bob, however Bob has managed to work this out for himself, he's worked it down into a way that it works for him, and it's mm-hmm. it gives him life as opposed to taking away his life. I mean, and Robbie does that sad list of the people that have been taken down. Uh, now, I mean, he does say, you know, like the road has claimed many a people, and he says Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. My argument, I don't know if the road killed them exactly mm-hmm. although you might make it argue that the pressure being on the road is what drove them to or just the life of the musician the life yeah exactly but uh i mean again i just thought about that like my god bob's been touring for six decades and and robbie is 20 to him is you know, i can't do it you know yeah, like, oh my like, god yeah yeah i mean i guess I, I guess at a certain point like bob has enough money and and like control over his situation that it, he can make it as easy for himself as humanly possible. But yep. I mean, but it's, I mean, no matter how much accommodation you have, like you're still traveling all the time yeah, um, and constantly like getting on a stage every other night, you know? So yeah, no matter like how comfortable your tour bus is, it's still got to be really tough. And yeah, maybe he's just built different, you know, <laughs> must be. He must yeah. love it. I mean, he wouldn't, he's not he, like everyone else in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, that is true. I mean, right. You say he's certainly got enough money. He doesn't need to be touring. So the fact that he is touring is because he wants to. It's because he wants yeah. to. He wouldn't be doing this to himself and he wouldn't be digging up new songs and covering, you know, city specific songs and putting yeah. a lot of extra work into it. Uh, he wouldn't be doing that unless he wanted to do it. And so obviously mm-hmm. say, him and Robbie are just very, we're very different. Uh, in that regard. So the ending of the film. Um, I love when a movie, I mean, this sounds so silly to say, cause I mean, of course you do, but I really love it when a movie sticks the landing, mm. like it really has a just great either final scene, final frame, final moment, however, you know, however you want to divvy it up. But I love it when a movie really has something that makes you say, oh my God, that was a great movie and the ending was as good or if not better than they found a way to end it perfectly. And I've been wanting for the longest time to do an episode of my my movie show Fade Out, which is all about the final films of various Hollywood careers. I've always wanted to do an episode on great movies with great final scenes. Like mm-hmm. just to do like a list of 10 of me and like a guest or me and multiple guests. And I, cause I can think of a couple of like, man, that, that just, Oh, wow. Did they yeah. find a perfect way to do it? And I don't know if the last waltz would make my list as at a top 10, but it would be up there because I find it so beautiful that after two hours of talk and music and all this raucousness, it just ends on these five guys. I mean, as much as I love Bob Dylan, the movie's about the band. So it doesn't end with the big jam. It ends with these five guys playing this acoustic number. None of them sing. And it's just them playing in this cold studio as Scorsese pulls the camera out further and further and further and further. And then the credits roll. And I think it is such a beautiful grace note to kind of end 
the film on of like just this very nice them just playing and seeing these five guys make music and just slowly pull out. I just think it's I just think it's a absolutely brilliant way to end the movie. I 100% agree. I don't know even how much I have to add to that because it's yeah, it's and them playing like this the I think it's called like the last waltz suite is what they call it, but um mm. just like this instrumental thing where like they don't they're not singing the rock and roll and they're just like playing together and the like you said it's like one of the only fade outs in the film like there's a couple in there but just for like transition sake I guess but the end like it fading is so perfect and like them getting smaller and smaller until they're gone it's so good it's yeah it's just a perfect ending I completely agree like I don't know what else to add but yeah it's great Scorsese knows how to to end a picture for sure yeah that he does um but yeah it's just I, I I just find it there's just some movies that sometimes I will watch just the end because like, Oh God, they just nailed this so perfectly. And, um, tell me into the- that fade out episode. Okay. <laughs> oh, that would be great. I would be I'll fantastic. That's okay. I already got stuff rolling around. Yeah. Me. Oh, I have a couple in my, in my head of like, you know, just, I don't even want to say what they are, but just a couple of like, even the, and we can talk about it. like sometimes movies are okay, but they have great endings and some movies are great and have great endings. And it's, that's, I know ending something can be hard because it's, yeah. you know, how, and so sometimes when they do it, do it right. Um, I just think it's, it's absolutely marvelous. And so again, I just, I would see the, the impetus would be have them sing one more song, mm-hmm. but no, just to have them play just the music and just, and, and it's like, okay, we're shutting off the lights on the band and we're done here. And so it's great. And it was so, it was a marvelous experience. I am so glad that they did this. I don't, I don't know how much money Fathom events makes from <laughs> these things. Um, but I hope they keep doing them because I think, you know, you should still, I own a million Blu-rays and I have a million movies on my Apple TV account, but there's nothing like seeing something in the theater. There just isn't. And, um, and so I, I'm so glad they did this. I have one last thing to say about, or maybe two, but I have one last thing to say about the ending, which I just thought of. Sorry for interrupting you. No, no um, problem. Yeah, that kind of makes me realize that, you know, like endings, like they're sad often, especially when it's a band that's so great and a lot of people love and they're so influential. Like a lot of their music is so influential to not just to like audiences, but to other musicians and stuff. Um, and I just sort of realized that there's not a lot of moments of like melancholy or sadness or, or like a bittersweet. Like, I don't know. I guess you could count the end as bittersweet in a way because. Yeah, I would say it is. Sure. Inherently because it's the ending of a great band. But like, I feel like normally a documentary about the end of something that a lot of people loved would like really lean into the pulling on your heartstrings thing. And I love that this film doesn't dwell on that like they just show the music and like that's what was good about it is that like the music's great and the people that they worked with were great and like that's what they're choosing to show instead of um i don't know a bunch of them being like i mean i guess the one like melancholy scene is robbie talking about how tough it is on the road but like that doesn't you know it doesn't go too low like it doesn't bring it down too much yeah and that's and i i really i respect that a lot i think it like you it's bittersweet inherently and the movie doesn't need to tell you that for you to understand that because like you can you can get that 
they're on your own. I don't know. Yeah. And they, and these guys, I mean, the, the live performances by the band are still, they're great. Like these guys are still at, at the, maybe I'm not, a am certainly not remotely an expert on their music, but like the concert's great. Like their music is great. They certainly seem like they're, they still have their full powers. Yeah. It's not like they're, they're, you know, way past their prime and it's like oh this is kind of sad mm-hmm. no they're they're still doing it yeah. um and by, by the way one last thing now that you were saying that that made me remind me of something i did want to mention is one of the great moments in friendship uh ever documented on film oh. is levon helm striking the match and lighting robbie's cigarette before he right lights his own that is oh, just such a so good <laughs> oh my I... God. I also, okay, as long as we're, like, getting little moments in, I will, like, I'll hate myself if I don't mention the part in Neil Young's performance um, when he kind of keeps looking over at them and, like, and smiling, and he decides to go over to their mic and sing the chorus with Mm -hmm. them is, like, so it like made me cry. <laughs> it was so like they look so happy, and also Robbie in general, like in the whole thing, he performs with so much emotion, and like there's just so much on his face, and it's so amazing to watch. Like every single like lick that he's playing on the guitar, it's like affecting him physically. It's amazing, and um, yeah, I thought you were gonna say the thing about. Um, Neil Young, when you were saying great moments of friendship, but I, that's great too. Yeah, that, that is a him great lighting moment. the cigarette was also an incredible moment. I love like just capturing those like little, little gestures, which uh, Scorsese is also great at, like anticipating those things and being able, like making sure that the camera is always there to capture those things. Yeah, a great moment of him striking the match and one that made me happy and neil young going over to sing in the mic i I can't tell you the number of times i've like gone on youtube since since (laughs) sunday night and just looked up neil young helpless the last waltz and like scrubbed to that part of the video it's so good (laughs) uh it makes me think watching this it makes me think and i know this will never happen but there needs to be a documentary of this kind for bob's never-ending tour there just oh, needs man. to be. Yeah. Now I know he'll never allow that. I, I get it. But I just I, I could you imagine what that would be like if you could Martin if Martin Scorsese, I mean, come on, Bob, you're Marty, your friends. If if Martin Scorsese and his crew were allowed access for just like four or five nights to follow Bob around, I would I, I cannot I don't even want to say what I would do to get footage of Bob playing cards on the tour bus with the guys. I don't know it what I did. Easier to say the things I wouldn't do. <laughs> and yes. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think, you know, that would, that would be a very short list, like vote, vote Republican or something, but like, <laughs> you know, it would just be that level of like, just, just the thought of seeing the band tell stories and then follow Bob and just be up close with him. Like it would be amazing, oh, but I know great. Bob is, Bob's never going to allow that. So. I'd be so fascinated to see wh- how he behaves, oh. like <laughs> behind the scenes, like that. Oh God, just uh, you know, come on, Bob, think about it. Yeah. Um. So okay, well, th- that's the last waltz, everybody. I think I think we've I think we've covered it sufficiently. Do you, you agree, Melissa? Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm trying to make sure I don't have anything else, but I think we covered <laughs> everything. I got okay. to say my piece about Neil Young. <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah, I mean, said it was you were the the minute I saw that this was getting released. I I think I wrote to you within 15 minutes 
of yeah. asking you to do this. And then when you said you hadn't seen it, I was so envious of you because you get to experience it for the first time in the way most, you know, you should see it. And that's great. That is so great that you get to, you get to do that. I would love to, I don't, there's only a handful of classic films, American classic films, I should say. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty lax on, on uh, international cinema, but like American films, I think I've seen most of the great, classics and when i go see them in theaters now it's to see it again which is great but it's a little different than seeing something for the for the first time so that is just i'm so glad that you got to have that experience i am too yeah it was it was such i was i feel so lucky to be able to have done that because yeah it's it's such a different experience and i think that if more people i don't know if anybody gets one thing out of this is it it's just like anything you want to go see just go see it in theaters like i understand waiting to go on VOD, but it will, my theory is that it makes you enjoy the film at least 30% more, at least 30% more than watching it at home. So always do it. And like the sound was so good as much of I, as much as I have beef with AMC at times, it was, the presentation was good. So um, it was a great experience. Good, 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 good. Well, uh, that's excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for coming back. You know, I always enjoy talking to you and we will do that fade out. That sounds like a absolutely yes. fun conversation oh now. So, um, so before we sign off here, I have to ask you an exit question, but I'm going to ask one specific to you, not, not into okay. the standard ones. Cause I've asked you a couple of the same ones because you've been on a couple of times before. So my question uh, to you would be my first question. Well, I'll ask you two. One is Bob related and one is not. One is. What's your favorite Martin Scorsese movie? Oh, do you have my one? Do you, would you, is there one you could pick to? They said he's your favorite. Okay, I have been having a crisis about this lately. I will say, I there's a couple I've seen most of his. There's and like pretty much all of the like big ones. The only big popular one I haven't seen. This is gonna sound so bad. I haven't seen um uh Last Temptation of Christ. Okay. okay. Um. Which I think I would like. I mean, I like all most Scorsese movies, but I, I mean, they're all they're also different. They're so good. Um, Taxi Driver is one of my favorites, and weirdly, I love The Irishman. I've seen that movie like six or seven times. Whoa, that's yeah. a time commitment. Um, but recently, in theaters, once again, I saw The Age of Innocence, and it was playing at I believe it was IFC in here in New York, and um seeing that on the big screen and it was my first time seeing it it was like a religious experience to me i wept through half of it Mm. it was so it's so beautiful like you know whatever restoration they did looks amazing and it's using his style which is normally meant for i know that he does like slow dramas and everything but often it's a lot of like movement and it's very um it like propels forward uh, his films but like using that style on a late 19th century romance is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Mm. Like it, it was just so gorgeous in the way that it moved. Uh, I don't know. It was just, it just pulls you forward and it pulls you in, in a way that I've never experienced with a romance like that before. Like normally I'm really not into just like straight romance movies. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of other things other than the romance, but like, you know, it's about like the societal expectations and everything. But, um, I don't know. I just thought it was so beautiful. I, I don't want to claim it's my favorite because I think they all are so different and 
his different eras of filmmaking, like the Irishman being so recent. Um, it's so different than his seventies films. And I love taxi driver. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, I think those three are like up there for me. Okay. Not to cop out, but no, I, I mean, he's, he's guy's got an amazing filmography. It would be hard to pin it down mm-hmm. to pin it down to one. So actually, okay. Uh, that actually wasn't even the exit question I had for you. That was just a bonus one. The <laughs> other one is, and you, I, we may have already answered it by talking about what we just talked about never ending tour, but now Scorsese has done three Bob Dylan documentaries covering 62 to 65 ish covering the Rolling Thunder years and then covering the last wall. So, you know, a couple, one thing is like one year and another documentary is several years that then, yeah, this is boiled down to a single concert. But if there, let's, let's pretend that the footage exists for whatever we want to do. But if there was one era of Bob's career that you would love to see Martin Scorsese do another documentary on, what would it be? Like what would Bob, but you know, Marty's take on this period from Bob Dylan's career. This might seem like an obvious one. Well, okay. Yeah, this might seem like an obvious one. But his evangelical Christian years, I think, would be absolutely amazing. Like, his return to religion. I think it would be really fascinating to see because it was such, like, a mixed bag in terms of the public's reaction to it. And um, his, like, attitude was so weird at the time. Um, and the fact that he went away from it is interesting. Like, obviously, you know, he says now that he doesn't like align with a single religion, but like, he was so intense for like those couple of years. And I think the period of him making like his three Christian albums and especially, I don't know, like Shot of Love and stuff, I think that would be so fascinating because it's, it's really not my favorite music, but I love Slow Trick train coming but it's not my favorite era of his but i think it would be the most fascinating to watch him work in and like hear other his contemporaries takes on it and what they thought at the time and you know john lennon making that song i don't know if you've heard it but john lennon's song that's sort of like a response to oh yeah yeah yeah, serve somebody yeah like you know if they had footage at the time maybe of john lennon talking about that that would be amazing that that would be great, and you know Scorsese's a I don't know if I call him a lapsed Catholic, but he's certainly a conflicted Catholic. Yeah. So yeah. somebody dealing with reli- his uh, a newfound conversion to religion would probably be right up his alley. He's been oh yeah, that talking be- about that in, in his movies his whole career. So yeah, yeah, that would be perfect. Well, all right, maybe that let's get let's get Marty on this. He's you know he he yeah, cranks out the documentaries because they're a lot easier to do probably than these giant narrative three and a half hour epics, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they don't cost 200 million to get done. Um, so that again, fantastic answer. Well, again, Melissa, thanks so much for coming back. You know, I, I just love talking to you and I'm glad we had a chance to, to, you know, a reason to talk about another uh, intersection of Martin Scorsese and Bob Dylan, which if you have said on the show before, is like two of your favorite things. Exactly. That's, it's what I'm all about. It's like everything I know in the world. Okay. <laughs> Bob Dylan and films. So <laughs> anytime, Perfect. anytime. I'm looking uh, forward to the Timothy Chalamet episode. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Oh boy. I'm yeah. That, me too. Me too. Really, really scared. Uh, well, uh, thank you all for listening. And of course, as I said at the top of the show, this is a bonus episode. So if you're listening, that means you support the show over on fmpods.com or an Apple podcast. And that I deeply, deeply appreciate. So thank you for the support. You can find the show 
uh, as pod underscore Dylan on Twitter and then on as pod Dylan on Blue Sky. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we will see you just in a couple of days with a regular episode on Saturday. So, again, thanks for listening, and uh, we will see you later. Bye. A Martin Scorsese film, The Last Waltz, starring Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Neil Diamond, Emmy Lou Harris, Neil Young, Van Morrison, Ron Wood, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton, The Staples, Ringo Starr, Dr. John, Ronnie Hawkins, Paul Butterfield. Join the band in The Last Waltz, rated PG.